how do you do? We felt it would be a little unkind to present this podcast episode without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So with that warning, it's best you prepare by picking up the latest issue of Fangoria, one of the premier brands in horror. Fangoria has been delivering quality magazines since 1979, and each collectible issue features exclusive articles about your favorite monsters, as well as up-and-coming terrors. Be sure to check out the Fangoria store website for subscriptions and a bunch of cool merch. And while you're there, use promo code WOULDYOUDIESHOW for 20% off your entire order. That's right, 20% off your entire order. Applies to subscription and one-time orders. Applies to the first subscription order only. And another announcement. This is episode 98 of the Would You Die podcast. 98, which means next week is 99. And the last week of 2023 will be episode 100. Can you guys believe it? It's uh kind of crazy, right? I've been doing this for a hundred weeks. So uh <laughs> I'm I'm really I'm really excited about that. And thank you to everyone, whether you started listening uh today, episode 98, or if you've been with me since episode one and any episode in between. I really I really appreciate everyone who's given my little show a chance, and I'm I'm really excited to hit episode 100. But we're not there yet. This is episode 98, and uh, this one's alive. So let's get into it. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. Have you ever felt a knife cut through human flesh and scrape the bone beneath? You're going to need a bigger boat. Be my victim. Hello, my name is Austin Torres, and welcome to the Would You Die podcast, the show where we talk about our favorite horror monsters and villains. Today, I am joined by producer of the upcoming horror short film, Spider. Please welcome back my friend, Doug Lumelin. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. This is your third time on, I believe. Yeah, it's your third time because we did Jaws we did in Jaws. the first year, and, then and we you were did... part of the first Gremlins special. I was part of the first gremlin special, which I don't remember because I was drinking. So. Like a gremlin. Yeah, like a gremlin. So if you want a, a treat, you can go watch that one, right? Learn my way through pretending to know anything about gremlins. You know what? <laughs> who would? Who will know except for the people doing exactly that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. So today our monster topic is one that I've wanted to cover on the show for a very long time. One that uh, I'm very close to 100 episodes, and I didn't want to go 100 episodes without covering a classic that's one of my favorites. Mitch McConnell. (laughs) Okay, episode's over. Bye, guys. Did I kill the buildup? No, you killed my podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, uh, we are talking about Frankenstein's monster today, and I'm I'm really excited. It's funny to prepare for this. I was gonna do like a bunch of different like adaptations of Frankenstein, and I ended up just watching the original uh, James Whale Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, in this really cool Boris Karloff documentary I found on Shutter, and that's all the prep I did. So I'm sorry to Robert De Niro. I'm sorry to the 2004 Hugh Jackman Van Helsing that has the Frankenstein. Uh, what the, other Frankenstein adaptations are there? There's the there's the James McAvoy, Daniel Radcliffe one, I think called Victor Frankenstein that they did. Oh, I never saw that. I, I never saw that. I, I haven't seen a lot of the, like, I, I never watched the, the, the De Niro, Kenneth Branagh one. I, I never really heard any good things about it. I've always wanted to watch the Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, um, the, the yeah. Hammer Order era, Frankenstein, which I didn't even know existed until very recently. But I've, I've not watched that either. But I am a disciple of the Universal Monster classic movies. So I watched those movies many, many times a long time ago. I did watch Frankenstein and Bride over Halloween. Um, nice. Kind of a little fun rewatch. But I beat you in terms of preparation, actually. Um, oh, yeah? Because I, in preparation for this podcast, actually read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein for the very first time. How was that? It was it was fantastic. I challenge you to find another one of your guests that has done, has read a whole book or prepared as much as me for a podcast. You hear that? You hear that, guests? Uh, future, past, recurring, whomever? The, the bar has been set. Neil Marshall comes out and is like, I directed the descent. Okay, the bar has been set again. <laughs> but no, I haven't. I've read Frankenstein when I was in high school. So did your high school make you read Frankenstein? Uh, yes and no. I was in AP English. And over the summer, they had us pick a book to read mm-hmm. to do a project. And I picked Frankenstein. So technically they made me made Frankenstein, but I picked it. There was like a list of 20 books. Yeah. I've, I've always wanted to read it never got around to, and this was the, the inspiration I needed. It's, it's a fascinating book. Oh yeah. You know, it's borderline Shakespearean in terms of the way it's written. Like, and maybe that's just going to make me sound dumb, but like, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to read, but you, once you get into it, I think it's written so well that the sentences flow. Well, it was written um, about 100 years ago, so writing yeah. was different. And no, it is hard to write, to read older novels and older literature because we're not used to that. Like we're used to Stephen King's writing because so many people are influenced by him and it's just writing is different. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think anyone would be dumb for taking a little bit to get into an older, older piece of work like that. Just like some people can't get into older movies because they're not used to the pacing and the accents. Like, that is a real thing. Yeah, it's a real thing. But, you know, the book, like the movies, holds up. Yeah. Um, But I was fascinated, really, by the amount of differences. I knew some elements of the book, but it really is. There's a lot of differences. Yeah. Obviously, the, the main one being that he can actually talk, right? Right can talk he learns how to talk but once he learns how to talk he, he talks like he's a 
geniusly uses incredibly big words. <laughs> He's got just perfect diction. But still, also different in that the monster in the book is kind of a dick. It's like, yeah, he, you know, he, he makes him, or Frankenstein makes the monster. He gets scared, runs away. And then the monster, like, learns how to speak. And he's like, I want to talk to these people. And he goes to talk to the people. And they're like, ah, you're an ugly shit. Get away from me. And he's like, well, okay, fuck humanity. I hate humans. And who made me? I got to go find that guy. And he finds him. He, you know, kills his brother, frames his, you know, the brother's babysitter, and kills his friend, kills his wife. And he's just like, ha, take that. <laughs> and the guy's like, leave me alone. It's like, no, you made me. Um, you're a jerk. But yeah. you are my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> yeah. A lot of that, a lot of it carries into the movie, but I think the relationship between Frankenstein and his monster is definitely a lot different in the book. Yeah. But yeah. I but I also think it's a testament to the movie, movies, and how creative they get, right? And a lot of things that they had to come up with for the movie. For instance, you know. The, the the usage of lightning and the creation or you know awakening of Frankenstein is not mentioned at all in the book. It's really left to your imagination to decipher how Frankenstein is reanimated and brought back to life. Yeah, there's there's a lot of wacky things that they incorporated. I do think I, I think that Frankenstein was made into a bunch of stage plays after the book was initially released. So I think that's where the movie drew a lot of its inspiration from. But, uh, but yeah, it's 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 fascinating. It, it was a very fun read and I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm I'm glad you did too because <laughs> now it makes me want to reread it. I I still have my high school copy. So yeah. <laughs> you should. You should. It's a it, it's definitely a worthy read. I feel like half the quotes in the book or like inspirational quotes or like life lessons and stuff like that. It's like the, the girl who was she was basically a teenager when she wrote it so it's almost ridiculous yeah. to consider the the themes that she evokes and the, the messaging that she gets across in such a strange story oh it's heavily influential on on not just myself but on uh the horror and science fiction genres as a mm -hmm. whole, I think it's a pillar piece of work for both of those huge genres. And uh, I think Frankenstein's a big reason why horror and science fiction go hand in hand so well. Mm -hmm. I think that H.G. Wells is a big part of that with Invisible Man and War of the Worlds. Yeah. But yeah, Mary Shelley, you, I think Frankenstein came first. I think you could say Mary Shelley invented science fiction as we know it. Yeah. I mean, I could fact check you on it but that's you know it's pretty pretty early for a book i, I remember i thought i read something no i i forget what i was gonna say <laughs> i thought i thought that there was some like somebody described frankenstein as like the first this type of info but i don't remember exactly what it was well i'm i'm sure it's the first of something <laughs> it feels like it is <laughs> yeah. and i think frankenstein came before the hg wells work so that's why I think it might be the first sign. But, you know, fact check me, guys. I don't know. I'm talking out of my hiney. Hashtag fact check. <laughs> I got a question for you. So this episode is going to be about Frankenstein's monster. And we and we'll branch it out to the bride as well, because I think the bride is a fascinating character. 
especially because she gets maybe a minute of screen time in her movie. <laughs> but it, that's a fantastic film. Um, I want to open it up to just the classic Universal monsters, because when you were on the show first, we talked about Jaws, which technically it's a classic and it's universal. Technically, Jaws is in the canon, but I I don't consider I for me, the classic Universal monsters are Frankenstein, the bride, Dracula, the Wolfman, the creature from the Black Lagoon, the mummy, the invisible man. And um, the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. Sometimes I, sometimes I loop out Phantom of the Opera just because it's kind of a, you don't know which one to include almost because there were, there were two right. relatively iconic ones. There's obviously the Lon Chaney one and then Claude Rains played Phantom of the Opera at some point in that, uh, in that span. But yeah, definitely. Uh, do you have a favorite? And My, you can you can interpret it as favorite film or favorite monster. If they're different, you can say both. My my favorite monster has always been Dracula. Always, I've always admired him as a as a character as like a purely evil presence. Right? There's no, you know, especially in the 1931 version. There's no backstory or anything. He's just an asshole. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, he's just bloodthirsty and he's he seduces women and whatever, you know, but he's suave and he's, you know, he's attractive and he's just alluring. Right. And he was the first one. Right. Not counting Juan Cheney and, you know, the, the silent era. He was really what kickstarted that the Universal Monsters craze was when his movie got released in in 1931. Favorite movie, I would say, I've always loved The Wolf. I've always loved that story and you know, the poetic irony of him being killed by his father at the end. I, I've I've always liked that story because I I've always appreciated Lon Chaney's take on the character. I don't know how good of an actor he was, but I, I did like him. It's funny you say that because I rewatched The Wolf Man this week. Mm-hmm. Just because watching the Frankenstein films, um, the first two, I don't own Son of Frankenstein or the Abbott and Costello one. So, but I do own Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Um, that put me on a little universal kick. So I put on The Wolfman earlier this week. And I think Lon Chaney Jr. delivers one of the best performances in a horror movie for that era. Yeah. I, I think he plays that very, very well. The other thing that I like about, that I appreciate about Lon Chaney is like, he's not really a, a very good looking guy, right? But he's playing that like lead role, but he's like, he's kind of fat and pudgy and walking around mm-hmm. and he's hitting on the, you know, the-, the Yeah, 20- he's a big dude. Yeah. And he's like spying on the girl through his telescope and the thing and he goes and tracks her down at her store and he's hitting on her right. and- trying to like seduce her away from her boyfriend or something. It's like, this guy's kind of, this guy's kind of annoying. Um, but, but yeah, I, I do love his performance in that movie. And that's the other mark on these movies that make them stand the test of time is they're really sustained by great performances. Um, yeah. Claude Rains and the Invisible Man, you never see him, but his voice is so maniacal and, you know, haunting. 
Talk about uh, an evil dick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, great, great performances, right? Frankenstein is, yeah, both yeah. movies are loaded with it. Colin Clive is, you know, fantastic. Henry Frankenstein, and obviously Karloff, yeah. um, who's probably the best of the bunch. Um, oh, yeah. Being the, you know, the multi dimensional corner actor. And I, uh, I think to, I mean, I don't know how much of what we're saying hasn't been said before. I These movies stand the test of time for a reason. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you just have to say it over and over again. Boris Karloff, his performance, and to do it under all that makeup, which is phenomenal makeup. Yeah, I'm sure you watched. I'm sure you saw a lot of stuff about the makeup when you watched that documentary. It's fascinating. And I think it was one guy, right, that did a lot of those universal makeups it was like, uh, jack pierce i think is his name yeah that sounds right, right. Like, i think he did frankenstein i think he did the wolfman which yeah i mean that that is that is an achievement all of its own right to have established those characters and creating some of the most iconic imagery in cinema right so that's that's how everybody pictures frankenstein's monster now with the with the electrodes in the neck and the flat head and stuff like that, none of which was right. in the books. Right. In the books, he just looked like a he just looked like an emo guy. But um <laughs> yeah, I mean that it's it's crazy. It's very impressive. And I think I think another another and I think you can apply this to Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman. Not to discredit Claude Rains or Bella Lugosi because they put in phenomenal work as their monsters, but they're different. Those two, mm-hmm. they're just evil. And it's fun to delight in their evil. But what Boris, Kar- Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr. are doing is they're putting a lot of empathy into their their villains and they're tragic. And you kind of, you don't, I don't know if rooting for them is the right word, but you, def- you definitely feel sorry for them when they're in the burning windmill or... Uh, I mean, you are killed by Claude Rains. <laughs> you are you are rooting for them, right? And you know, Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster in particular. It's a you know, it's kind of a deviation from the book because you don't really like the monster in the book because right. he's just a pest, right? And he's murdering everybody around Frankenstein out of revenge. But in the movie, it's a really brilliant creative choice to portray him as a, a victim. Right. Um, yeah. Of his own existence, Karloff was just a—he was a multi-dimensional, multi-dimensional, very talented performer. And right, he could do that. He could evoke empathy out of his roles. He just had the eyes for it, regardless of what he was playing. So he ended up playing just such a wide range of characters over his career. Whereas Lugosi was Dracula, right? Like he was that guy yeah. was born to play dracula and really only dracula like that that was his role and he created that out of thin air and it becomes one of the most iconic performances ever but i love the i've always been fascinated by the relationship between karloff and lugosi i don't know too much about the behind the scenes and the documentary really didn't really didn't touch on his relationship with Lugosi. It just kind of focused on Karloff's career. Apparently Karloff was a big, big part of the creation of SAG, 
which I think was really interesting, especially, you know, with the strikes going on this year, happening mm-hmm. this year. But uh, I think it's interesting because I feel like Karloff was able to get his Dracula type, just evil motherfucker role with the mummy. Yeah. I mean, I've I've heard it described that the mummy is basically just Dracula. Yeah. Like, it's the, <laughs> the exact same thing. It's almost it's almost actor for actor the exact same thing because Edward Van Sloan, who plays Van Helsing in Dracula, plays mm-hmm. I forget the character's name, but basically the opposing old doctor, smart, good guy character, avenging angel, whatever. <laughs> he yeah, plays yeah. with the exact same role in the mummy, so it's, it's pretty funny. But Lugosi was kind of the the salieri to Karloff's Mozart. He for like five seconds he was on top right like frankenstein was the first one they release it it's this massive hit this massive success and they immediately move to start making frankenstein and they're you know they pin lugosi for the role because it makes sense because he was like the horror star at the time and he was you know lugosi was a stage actor and he was very proud and he thought that playing a a mute a, you know, a role with no dialogue would be a a downgrade or an insult to his, you know, bravado or, or his persona as a performer. <laughs> so he turned it down and basically allowed for an opportunity for this up and coming Boris Karloff to to take the role. And from that point on, he just he became the darling of horror. Yeah, in America, any any movie that he was in, they you know, they wouldn't bill him as Boris Karloff. They just bill him as Karloff because he was just such a recognizable face and name and people would go to see him. And, you know, for a while they were, you know, they would share the screen like they shared the screen in The Black Cat and The Raven after that. And those were huge successes and incredibly well done because, you know, they were good performers and they played very well off of each other. It's, I imagine like being a a viewer in that era must have been it would have been like an Avengers Endgame, Avengers moment to see those two guys come together on the screen. I have a, I have a poster in my room of Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff sitting together at a premiere for a movie called Black Friday, which came out in 1940, I think. And there was an instance where they had tapped Karloff and Lugosi to be in the movie. Um, Lugosi was playing the doctor and Karloff was playing the detective or something. It was like a gangster movie. Mm-hmm. The doctor was basically the the leading role and the detective was like the second leading role. Karloff, and for whatever reason, really wanted to play the doctor in Black Friday. So they cast Karloff as the doctor instead of Lugosi, even though they'd already pinned Lugosi for it. But instead of just switching the two and having Lugosi play the director, they relegated him to like a bit part in the movie. <laughs> I love, I have no idea whether or not this is true or not, but I've always imagined that being sort of the end of the the struggle for Lugosi, where he finally kind of had no choice but to step back and say like, okay, I don't, <laughs> I really can't compete with this guy. We're not neck and neck, right? He's, right. he's the it guy. Um, he's the Mozart. Yeah. He's the Mozart, but I've always had a fascination for, for 
for Lugosi for that reason. I think it's just such a cool struggle because, you know, it's a cool feud because it's not even a feud, right? It's just Lugosi being jealous, um, notoriously jealous of all the success of the work that Carlock was getting, especially when you consider the fact that Lugosi kind of paved the way for him by not taking Frank right. himself in the first place. And and yeah, you could you could say he made his own monster in that regard, <laughs> keeping yeah. it in theme with the Frankenstein conversation. But it's also interesting because I think, I mean, with us being able to talk about it in 2023, these movies were being made in 1931, 1933, 1930, you know, the 30s and the 40s. It's funny, Bela Lugosi, I feel like there are more contenders for the who is the iconic Dracula than there are for Frankenstein. That's true. That's true. I think I know Robert, I know Robert De Niro made a Frankenstein, but like no one's being like, oh yeah, De Niro's Frankenstein goes toe to toe with Karloff's. No one's saying that. And Robert De Niro is one of the greatest actors ever, who ever lived. Right. I think the problem is, I I imagine that a lot of the other interpretation of Inter- interpretations of Frankenstein didn't really do the character as good a justice as the original film did. Whereas I think Dracula movies, there have been a lot of good Dracula movies and a lot of good Draculas because they're well directed and it's arguably an easier character to play because you just got to be like suave and evil, which I feel like a lot of characters, a lot of actors can do. But, you know, to your point, adding that empathy. Right. And right. The empathetic nature of the character. That's something that Karloff was able to do with his eyes. Right. And that's that's a very unique tale. I uh, I want to pivot for a little bit because uh, pivot time, guys, he literally just pivoted for us. I, did. <laughs> I pivoted for the camera. We made a movie this year. We did. I want to talk about that a little bit because. At the time of this recording, uh, we are pretty close to the finish line, and I'm really excited about that. It's going to be exciting. And I don't want to say too much about what's actually in the movie, because... Oh, shit. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it's called called Spider. There's a spider. Yeah, what are you going to (laughs) spoil? But, no, yeah, yeah, it's a six-minute movie. There's not much to spoil, but... uh, Larry I'm the really cable excited for it. Was it? Larry the cable guy shows up halfway through. <laughs> what a random place to go to pull out a cameo. <laughs> Get her done. <laughs> the reason why I want to why I want to bring it up a bit is because Frankenstein was a uh, was a big influence for me when I was writing Spider. Will that show in the finished movie? I don't know. That's up for, for you guys. That's up for the audience to decide. But uh, it's there. I, I do have that Frankenstein influence there. I think a lot of people when they watch when they watch Spider, I think uh well I'm hoping they'll think of Alien. Cause I, I have a pretty I have a pretty blatant homage to Alien. <laughs> yeah. I mean there's you know, yeah, there there's definitely there's a lot of Alien, there's a lot of Frankenstein, um there's green, so this ties to both Frankenstein and Alien and Africa. Um <laughs> Was that the was that the point? Just bring in the green stuff. I mean, the um, spider is it, it's a science fiction movie with a, the backstory as a scientist makes it genetically 
Should I say that? What do you mean? Is that a spoiler? Is that a spoiler? No, I was just thinking of Larry the Gable guy again. Oh, okay. <laughs> but no, I uh, when this episode comes out, I'm hoping we'll have something to say as for the release of Spider. That be because we are really close to being done. I know it's going to hit the festivals in 2024, mm-hmm. and that I'm really that I'm really excited about. So, um, people listening, especially because I know a lot of people listening to this podcast contributed to our Indiegogo. So, thank you guys so much. It uh helped us make our monster movie. I I think you guys are really going to dig it. I'm really proud of how it's turning out, and uh. We still got some stuff in post. We're tightening the screws on the sound and the music, and then it got to be colored. But yeah, it's really, it's really far in, far in there. But as far as influences, I just kind of looked at my favorite monster movies. So I think people will see a lot of Frankenstein. I think people will see a lot of Alien. I think Jurassic Park is a big, a big one in Spider. Uh, Predator has some moments, and then. Not not necessarily monster movies, but I was thinking a lot about Child's Play and The Evil Dead. So I wonder how much of those elements come through. Definitely Child's Play. I, I, I can imagine Child's Play for sure. Cool. And Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> is, is that the bit, the running bit of this episode? I don't know why I'm so hooked. Um, just like he's in the fridge. Or something, and halfway through, he just pokes out and says, Gear done, and then just goes back in, and then there's nothing. That'd be great. He can't cost that much. Well, that's a producer's job. So you just buy him a PBR or something, and he, <laughs> he'll stay for a couple hours. Well, when it comes to that contract, get her done. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank, I want to thank the people who contributed as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this has been a very fun experience for for both of us, but for me in particular, with this being my first movie in because we shot it at my house. So it's, it's been a very exciting summer, very looking forward to seeing the finished product of, you know, what I've seen thus far. It's crazy impressed by what Austin and what the crew have done really put something very special together. And I'm excited for you all to see it. So keep track or stay tuned to, social media accounts and the would you die social media accounts for announcements i'm sure they'll start coming through pretty soon as as we wrap things up but uh, thank you to all who contributed especially the grandmas oh yes but yeah that was that was a really fun shoot i uh i've been working really really hard on it and uh i'm excited for it i'm excited to get her done <laughs> try prilosec <laughs> Does he do the Prilosec commercials? Yeah, I think so. He'd make a great Frankenstein's monster. You think so? He just looks like a person that was assembled from different body. Well, he's huge. He he could he could play Frankenstein's monster. You know what idea just popped in my head? That was my attempt to pivot the conversation back to Frankenstein's monster. By the way, so if you if you screw that up, I might. But you know what just popped in my head is I I just fan casted Victor Frankenstein. Who I always forget his name is Henry Frankenstein in the movies. His name is Henry Frankenstein in the movies because they thought that the name Victor sounded too harsh. But what I think is funny is that they made his best friend Victor. Yeah. <laughs> and in the book, his best friend's name is Henry. So they just swapped yeah. the names. Oh, <laughs> uh, you gotta love you gotta love the 30s. They but, thought the uh, name Victor was 
they thought the name Victor was too harsh, but they decided to stick with the name Frankenstein, which I right. like a lot harsher. But it's uh, what's interesting to me, for whatever reason, in my head, it's always Victor Frankenstein. And every time I watch the movie, I'm like, oh, yeah, they renamed him Henry. And I never remember that. But uh, my original point was, I think I think uh, Stephen Yen would make a really good Victor Frankenstein. Oh, totally. Yeah, I, I could totally see it. I think he could convey the the craziness, right? The, you know, the, the craziness and then immediate regret. I always thought right. that was part about the character of Frankenstein is that he's super into it and he almost instantly regrets his decision after it's done. He's like, oh, shit. Well, first he's like, oh, look, he can walk. He can see. He can murder. Oh, don't do that. And and that's a really hard thing to be this villain, really. But redeem yourself. And I think Colin Clive in the original does a really good job because you see his madness and you see him playing God. And he says it like, now I know what it is to feel like to be God. Which is a line that they cut from the original um release so the original mm. piece, if you're watching that back you see a very visible like cut in that in that shot where they're like hanging on to him and he's mentally orgasming um right like i think they cut it just I don't know, religious reasons or or something like that like too sensitive of a topic so but and that you, that was <laughs> pre-hays code too yeah which is really really interesting i'm trying to think of other actors because there's a bunch of actors that could play victor frankenstein really well steven yen was the first one to come to mind yeah this is this is probably a really easy choice probably like an obvious one but i'm still gonna say it christian bale christian bale i think i don't know why this popped into my head but i feel like it'd be i feel like adam driver could play both parts. that okay if you get the right writer and director yeah. That would be a really cool movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I could totally see that. Adam Driver's a big guy, but he's also got that, you know, crazy expressionism to him. And I think he's the right age. He could yeah. he, he could do both. You're right. That would be a fucking awesome movie. There you go. That's next. Oh shit. <laughs> we can make we can make an adaptation of Frankenstein with Adam Driver and Larry the Cable. <laughs> And Larry, the cable guy, is not playing uh, the scientist or the monster. He's no. playing uh, the Elizabeth. love interest. Yeah, he's playing Elizabeth. <laughs> I like how we both go for Elizabeth and not like Fritz. <laughs> Fritz, I love Fritz. Well, that would have been the easy answer, but no, we went for the interesting one. <laughs> yeah, Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry played, uh, played Fritz and Renfield. So, oh, yeah. I don't know why that just clicked in my head, but it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, I think he, he was just typecast. He was just that, that guy, or whatever. I think yeah. he, played, I think he played a lot of those characters or characters like that on stage. I think he actually played Fritz, which obviously that's another difference from the book, right? The, the hunchbacked lab assistant. Mm-hmm. Also funny that, you know, Fritz is the name of the character and not Igor, because now everybody refers to him as, Igor, but Igor didn't show up until Son of Frankenstein. <clears throat> and that's and Igor is the one that was in uh he was parodied in Young Frankenstein. Right. 
Yeah. Igor, yes. Igor. Yeah. <laughs> Igor and Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. Igor and Son of Frankenstein, which is a great movie. Um, I meant to watch it before this podcast, but I didn't have time to. Um, you did read a whole book, so you're good. I did read a whole book, but also a nice little nod to that budding relationship between Karloff and Lugosi. You know, Lugosi plays Igor in Son of Frankenstein. So <laughs> I, I always wondered if he liked that role, you know, the way it made him look, because I feel like he was probably self-conscious about his looks. Right. I digress. I just thought of another adaptation of Frankenstein because I think it's easier. I mean, there are a lot of adaptations of Frankenstein, but I think you can see a lot of iconic science fiction horror films that are essentially the next step from Frankenstein. Um, But as far as actual adaptations, there's that movie that came out this year which I actually watched and I thought it was really good. It's called the angry black girl and her monster. Oh yeah. I did not see that yet. And I don't know what I was expecting, but it was actually pretty good. I was like, okay, okay. They're cooking here. So that's on uh, everyone listening. If you want to watch a really cool indie horror movie, that one's a really good one. It's on shutter. I think that one was fantastic. And then there's one, I haven't seen it, but there's one that Bernard Rose did. And Bernard Rose is best known for being the director of Candyman. Mm -hmm. And all I know about it is Tony Todd. And the only reason why I know about it is because I was listening to a Tony Todd interview and uh, um, I haven't seen the movie yet, but Tony Todd plays the blind violinist. Oh, that's cool. What is 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 that? What is that? I don't know when it came out. I think it's more recent, but yeah, I and I'm sure there's even more. 2015. More, yeah, it's called. It's I haven't called Frankenstein. I haven't seen it yet, but I think, I mean, Bernard Rose is a pretty good director. <laughs> it looks like yeah, it's Car- a, a modern day retelling. That's what it appears uh, to be. Danny Houston's in it. Carrie Ann Moss is in it. Tony Todd. Yeah, it's um, never heard of it. There's some good names on attached to it. And upcoming, there's Lisa Frankenstein. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. We saw that trailer. Um, I forget what movie we saw, but um, um, oh, oh, it's when we saw Thanksgiving. That trailer played before. Yeah, right. With, uh, I think it's Catherine Newton, Newton, and Cole Sprouse. Yes, and then um, Guillermo's doing the Frankenstein. That's right. That's right. Because it's going to be fucking hot. With, uh, yeah, Andrew Garfield, I think, is playing the monster. And then I think it's Oscar, Oscar Isaac is as, a, as the scientist and Mia Goth as the bride, I think. I love Mia Goth. She's, she's a great casting bride. I love that. I, I'm so excited for all. I, this could quickly turn. This episode could quickly devolve into a multitude of tangents at this very moment. <laughs> and all of them have to do with Shia LaBeouf because <laughs> because you mentioned Mia Goth. Shia LaBeouf's going to be in the movie. He's going to play an angry villager. <laughs> Not planned. He's just going to show up on set and be angry. And it's like, yeah, just, just leave it in. There's an interview with Guillermo del Toro. We didn't cast him or anything. He just showed up and I said, keep rolling. <laughs> 
He just shows up on set, says some random shit like chickens are real. And they just, just like they just keep it. It fits with the theme. <laughs> but no, that move I'm excited for that movie. And I'm it's like it's about time Guillermo del Toro gets to do his universal monster movie because I mean the man's really fucking good at making movies. I know. Well he basically he basically adapted or semi-adapted creature from the black lagoon already um right so it's it's a great opportunity for him and i'd be very excited to see it i'm sure he'll nail it oh yeah i and i think not to have our del toro uh tangent go too long i don't think we as a society talk enough about how good he is as an actor's director yeah he's yeah he's fantastic i mean what what he did with Sally Hawkins in Shape of Water, you know, also another mute role. Yeah. I mean, she, she was incredible. And she's an actress that's never really been like a lead in movies. She always kind of played bit roles. And this was a great opportunity for her. And she absolutely killed it. And obviously, Richard Jenkins, I just watched Shape of Water recently. So it has been on my oh, nice. Richard Jenkins just plays a, a great role in that movie. That, that's just a really. Oh, yeah. Fun, entertaining movie. I watched Crimson Peak recently, so I'm thinking of Tom Hiddleston. I'm thinking of Jessica Chastain. Yeah, right. The lead actress, Mia, I don't know how to say her last name, but she's in the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland movies. Oh, yeah. She's fantastic in it. Charlie Hunnam, (laughs) which just, it's so weird because I'm so used to Charlie Hunnam as like a Sons of Anarchy type. Yeah, and to see him in this gothic, but I mean, he was in Pacific Rim, which uh is also Del Toro and completely different from Crimson Peak. But I uh, no, I think the world of that director, and I just love the performances he gets from those actors. That Maestro movie that Bradley Cooper's doing is coming out, and I keep thinking about his performance in Nightmare Alley. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, and uh, I'm excited for Larry the Cable Guy. Uh, <laughs> Shia LaBeouf comes out of nowhere. Chickens are real. And he's like, yeah, I know chickens are real. My favorite chicken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So back to Frankenstein. Um, <clears throat> when you when you read the book, did did they have the blind violinist in it? Yes. So he the way that he learns how to talk and read and write and basically do everything is he spends like four months like in a a hovel adjacent to a cottage with a family in it. And the dad is blind and plays the violin. So he he spends months like observing them, watching them. And then he finally works up the energy and courage one day to like go to like talk to them. And he goes when only the blind man is in the house. And that's what the Bride of Frankenstein scene is inspired by, because there's a moment where they just they're just chilling. They're, they just have a good relationship because the guy can't see him and the monster can talk so they're just having a normal conversation and you know and then the kids walk in they're like ah and he's like damn it that was so close but the dad plays the violin so that's like you know the first time he hears music and stuff like that so that that is that that is directly inspired by the i think i think that's really interesting and really clever of james whale and everyone else who made that movie uh bride of frankenstein to mm-hmm. everything we didn't put in our adaptation yeah we can 
either put into this one or extend those ideas because like I said, I haven't read the novels since high school. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's any inkling of make me a, a bride. The monster needs and needs a mate. I don't think there's any of that in the novel, but I do think that is a natural extension because a big part of Bride of Frankenstein is the creature is lonely. Well, that is an element of the book. The monster confronts Frankenstein and basically says, like, you know, make me a bitch. <laughs> Get her done. Frankenstein needs his bitches. Get her done. <laughs> yeah, so that that is an element of the book. And then Okay. And then he Frankenstein like starts it the process and then he's like, No, fuck this, I'm not doing it or whatever. And then the monster gets really mad and kills his best friend and his wife, which I think was a bit of an overreaction. But a little bit. A little bit. So yeah, you don't actually see a bride in the book, but it is an it is an element of the book. Gotcha. Gotcha. Bride of Frankenstein is brilliantly crafted. Yeah. I, I agree with your point. Like they, they treated it like a part two to the original movie, which is very smart. It takes place literally immediately after the end of the first one. And you know, they were able to take so many elements from the book and insert it into into that movie that they weren't able to do it. And Bride of Frankenstein, I think, is a much more character-driven movie and it's more emotional right and it obviously gives the monster a a chance to expand his horizons as a being and talk and smoke and drink smoke (laughs) i think i was implicitly inspired by by frankenstein the pride of frankenstein as a kid to one day become a cigar smoker and look at you now i'm a cigar smoker smoke good something that you've told me over our many years of friendship is you want to slowly and gradually build like your own cigar lounge where Mm -hmm. you have like framed pictures of iconic people smoking cigars. I think we got to have the screenshot of the monster, uh, Frankenstein's monster with his cigar. (laughs) Oh, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That'll be a big one. Cause it's going to be like Arnold (laughs) and uh, Michael Jordan. Yeah. There's Arnold, Michael Jordan. There's a, there's a really iconic picture of Jack Nicholson smoking a cigar. Mm. Is De Niro in uh, Goodfellas? Is he smoking a cigar in that iconic shot, or is that a cig? I don't remember. Or maybe he's taking a drink. I want to. Well, you're talking about when he's at the bar. Yeah, like the sunshine of your love moment. I think so. He's at the bar. He's at the. I have not seen Goodfellas in years. It might. It might be a cigarette. I think they were. I think they were all smoking cigarettes. In- and Goodfellas, I think that was part of the aesthetic. But I could be totally wrong. Well, we could still get De Niro from Cape Fear, so we will have De Niro in a cigar. <laughs> there's a lot of great. I mean, I think there's, I think there's a picture of Marilyn Monroe smoking a cigar too. Oh, that would be cool. That'd be cool. There's, <laughs> this is me being a nerd, but there's this really cool picture of Stan Winston with one of the lost world velociraptors and they both have cigars. <laughs> I think that would be iconic. <laughs> but I'm sure I'm sure there's we could find some of your favorite filmmakers with yeah. cigars. I'm sure there's a picture of Tarantino or uh, um the Coens or whoever. <laughs> I'll just take a picture of you the next time you smoke a cigar in like 12 years. It might be a little sooner than that. I think we definitely got to put 
Frankenstein's monster up in that. Because every time I watch Bride, I think of you. Smoke. Good. <laughs> I wonder if Larry the Cable Guy smokes cigar. Smoke. Good. <laughs> but I, I, I do want to continue talking about Bride for a little bit because um, I, I see a lot of opinions on the internet, which whatever that means, they... I feel like the consensus is Bride of Frankenstein is the best universal monster movie. And I'm not entirely opposed to that idea. I'm not opposed to it either. I think James Whale is the best director of the bunch. right? And I think I he, agree. I think he was the most innovative and his movies certainly feel the most complete. And yeah, like you said, Bride of Frankenstein, it's, it's a very emotional movie. It's, you know, the performances are really good. It expands upon the first one. It achieves a lot. It achieves a lot more than the other films do in it being a sequel and being just as good, if not better, than the original. So I- I'm not against that viewpoint either. I do think a lot of like the iconic Frankenstein's monster moments is from that one, is from Bride. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that the ending, the ending of that film where... uh they have this really great technique of using the heartbeat as kind of like a timpani creating tension and just kind of rhythmically anti anti up the tension. It's so cool. Cause like, and you could tell it's a timpani, but it's like, boom, boom, <laughs> boom, boom. And you hear that technique used in scores today, that kind of work. But, um, no, I think it's so good. And then when they reveal the bride and it's this beautiful fanfare mm-hmm. of music. And there's this great shot of her eyes, like in the bandages. It's, it's fantastic a, filmmaking. It's a great, yeah. And I love how it's randomly the gayest monster design that's ever been created with the with the long hair that jumps like four decades into the future, basically with the, the lightning bolt, like white stripe going up the thing. It's it's such a weird choice, you know, that they used to make that character, but it's iconic. Slay queen. Yeah, exactly. No, I, well, it's interesting you say that because James whale was gay, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know much because I happen to be, straight but like gay people get a lot of shit today to be gay in the 40s <laughs> in the 30s like holy shit mm-hmm. i mean it, it's rough today and we have progress on our side oh, yeah. so the 30s and the 40s but i think that's what makes james whale a very important figure not just in horror but in cinema because i i think the classic universal monsters transcend horror I agree. I wholeheartedly agree with that point. And I think I think he was probably a, a tour de force. You know, I think he commanded authority on set and had a lot of autonomy over what, you know, over the decisions that were made and the style of the movie itself. I think a lot of that was James Whale and his creativity. And back then, I mean, if there was a place for a gay man to work and express, I'm sure the horror film industry was a pretty good place to be and especially because i feel like those classic universal monsters with frankenstein's monster and the wolfman and to a certain extent i think the creature from the black lagoon 
those are monsters where a lot of people who feel like they don't fit in for whatever reason, they can relate to Frankenstein Mm -hmm. or the Wolfman. Not that they want to eat people whenever there's a full moon, but they can relate to not feeling accepted. They can relate to not feeling like everyone else. And I think, I I don't think James Whale directed the Wolfman, but I do think that's something that James Whale and later directors were able to identify. Mm -hmm. Maybe not consciously, but there's a reason why we're talking about these characters today. It's a very important part about that character, right? That he is, that he does feel rejected and he, he lashes out because, you know, because of the way people respond to him, because it's not his fault that he's ugly, right? And there's people today born into all kinds of circumstances that they don't have control over, right? And, you know, they, they lose their faith, right? And the same way that the character in the book turns against his God, right? Because his God gave him a shitty life by making him big, ugly, and stupid. And uh, I think Bride of Frankenstein, for me, you mentioned earlier how they were really able to focus on the emotional aspects of that story. Mm -hmm. Every time I watch this movie, the ending really gets me because it breaks my heart every single time. It breaks my heart that... Frankenstein's monster and Boris Karloff does an amazing job with this line reading. We belong dead. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's heartbreaking. And then we haven't mentioned her yet. I don't know how, but Elsa Lancaster. Yeah. I just love it. It's like, we belong dead. And she's just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which she's only been alive for 30 seconds. So it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> already already sassy slay I, queen i love the bride of frankenstein but there are two things about the bride of frankenstein that i do not like oh uh, <laughs> one is very minor but in that final scene when the, the bride is brought to life they cut to colin clive and he goes she's alive alive and i'm like you know i get it you're using your catchphrase but like, that's the, the corniest shit in that movie, and that movie has like yeah. little pe- little people in jars or whatever. Like <laughs> that to me is like the most cringe-worthy part about the movie, where it just and it's it feels so out of place. The cut it it, it makes no sense. It's like they added it in after the fact almost. And it's like no, that feel <laughs> that feels like a twenty twenty three Disney Warner Brothers demanded reshoot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it feels like it feels like oh 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 we gotta put Venom in the uh end credits of Spider-Man No Way Home <laughs> for no reason. For no reason. <laughs> and it's like, just oh, like put the good phrase in there. People like the phrase. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, people like the phrase, but well, okay, fine, whatever. It, it don't really fit here, but <laughs> it's <Yeah>. fine. <laughs> The next movie was Son of Frankenstein. The tagline should have been, he's alive or <laughs> This time, he's really alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The second part that I hate about The Bride of Frankenstein is something that I also hate about The Invisible Man. Oh. Can you guess what it is? 
Oh my god. Oh my god. Is it the is it the one old lady? Her name is Una O'Connor. And <laughs> I like her and her and James Whale must have been like drinking buddies or something because she shows up in The Invisible Man and The Bride of Frankenstein. She's got a pretty prominent role in The Invisible Man. And she, you know, overacting is just an understatement, but she has the most piercing and annoying scream that she breaks out at the most random times like a chair falls over the invisible man she goes ah. and it's just crazy and i found on youtube a compilation in this it's like 30 seconds long and it's just her screaming non-stop um, it's just the clips of her screaming from i think the invisible man that made me laugh really hard but that's the second thing that I hate about the Bride of Frankenstein, and really the only thing that I hate about the Invisible Man. I, I don't know who this woman was or why she had this role. It's just it's it's annoying. I'm very proud of myself for knowing exactly <laughs> what you were gonna say for pick number two. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I didn't say anything, but I did guess your pick number one because you those did. are my only those are my only complaints with Bride too. Yeah. No, I, I think we're of the exact same opinion. But yeah. for me, Bride is still a five star movie. It's pretty much perfect. I'm not going to let one cringy line delivery and one annoying side character. To me, that's not going to bring it down. It doesn't. It doesn't sink the movie an inch. Um, it's, but it's it's still funny to think about. Um, right. Like these exactly. Movies, they stand the test of time, you know, but the moments like that, that's where they show their age. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, this was made in the 30s. Yeah. <laughs> early 30s. Not as early as 1910 when the first Frankenstein movie was released. Oh, I didn't know that. Edison. Edison released a, a silent film. It's like seven minutes long. Frankenstein. And it's, uh, it, it's actually very well done. It's like they have restored versions of it. You can find it on YouTube if you want. Oh, so... So they were able to keep that because a lot of films from that era is lost. Yeah, no, it's still oh, that's cool. They still have it. And there's a really cool sequence when he when he brings the character to life where it's I don't really know what he's doing, but it's basically like he's cooking him in an oven or something like that. Whatever. Oh, wow. Like it's a recipe. And they do, um, you know, kind of a trying to think of how to describe it, but they they reverse the the footage what's the term for that or like they play it in reverse so they had like a model in an oven and they burnt they burnt it they melted it basically and then they reversed the footage for the actual movie so it showed they played this, it backwards yeah played it backwards showing this thing being created in the oven and like for like 1910 that's, that's pretty innovative almost one of yeah. the first time anybody had done that you know i know they've they've used similar mechanics and did they use it in indiana jones reversing the footage i know they use sped up footage in indiana you're talking about the face melting right yeah yeah so they sped up they they um so for the face melting they melted it in real time but they shot it over like a day and they sped it way up for what you're talking about reverse i know they use that technique in the wolfman yeah, the last transformation, and then they um they used a similar technique reversing the footage for Ringu when Sadako comes out of the TV and is walking towards a uh, scorpion. What's his name? I always forget his name. 
God, it's a... Uh, Hiroyuki Sonata? Yeah. <laughs> what is his name? Yeah, you got it. Hiroyuki Sonata. Okay. He's awesome. I, I like him a lot. He is um, But yeah, I know they use reversing the footage for to make the original Sadako kind of like move mm. all weird. And I know there's other stuff that's used it. But I'm thinking of more recent examples. 1910. I, I would not be thinking of any examples earlier than that. I, I, I want to look it up. I, I got to believe it's the first time anybody's ever done it. You should, you should give that a watch. I mean, anybody listening, just it's, I think it's literally seven minutes. Oh, hell yeah. You know, it's, a, it's an adaptation of the book, obviously. So not a whole lot like the 1931 movie, but still, but still a fun little trivia thing to watch. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. something i'd like to ask is for you person what does frankenstein's monster kind of because i know you're big in the universal monsters and you have been since you were a kid what does frankenstein's monster mean to you i mean it it really kind of like you said i mean me personally it's just just a call back to being a kid and that's you know not a lot of kids my age were watching universal monster movies in you know in the early 2000s so that kind of that defined a large portion of my childhood and my Halloween costumes and you know my toy collections and and stuff like that. So it it really is a it's a nostalgia thing for me. And that's why when they attempted to do when Warner Brothers attempted to start that dark universe thing a few years back, I think they were going to have Javier Bardem play the monster, but it ultimately fell through. I was sad because I I really do want to see somebody try to bring these monsters back to life as they were in the 30s and the 40s because they they meant a lot to me and i think they're just brilliant stories brilliant gothic tales and characters and they deserve their place on the screen i wholeheartedly agree i i have a very similar upbringing and um i do appreciate that universal has been trying um they just haven't figured it out because like yeah, I was also disappointed when the Dark Universe was not great, unfortunately dead on arrival. Mm -hmm. But I mean, as early as like the late 90s, early 2000s, we had the Brendan Fraser movies. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily horror, but still fun, had some horror elements. And then um, we had that Wolfman remake in 2010 that joe johnston did and i know a lot of people hate that movie i like it maybe it's because it came out in 2010 and i was like the right age for it but <laughs> it was fun you know I, I just think it was a little campy oh definitely i did appreciate the wolf makeup though yeah. like that where that benicio del toro wolfman looks awesome and if it's one thing they got right, at least it was that. They definitely got the look. The look is fantastic. But it's such a sad story. And there's yeah. so many other like, werewolf films and adaptations that have you know, paid better homage to the archetype story of a, of a person dealing with that affliction. Um, right. I'm overthinking it. But it would have been, I think it could have been better, especially with that cast. I mean, you had Anthony Hopkins and stuff like that, but like, Anthony Hopkins turns into a werewolf at the end and they fight. And it's like, what, what, what is that? <laughs> right. Right. It's the complete opposite of what happens in the original Wolfman. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, Claude Rains would be like, what? <laughs> and then like recent, uh, more recently, we did have the 2020 Invisible Man, which is a fantastic film, but also very standalone. And we <laughs> had two Dracula movies this year with Renfield and The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which were fun in their own ways. But um, while I, I'm, I'm very happy there's still interest in these characters. I agree with you. It would be nice to kind of see like a franchise. The monsters together. Yeah. Yeah. I know I said Warner Brothers earlier. I didn't say Universal, but you know, I I think it's something that could be done. And you could almost think of what Carl Lindley did in the 30s, kicking that off, almost being sort of like the first Kevin Feige, right? Maybe the first like cinematic universe in a sense. Like the, the films were standalone, but eventually they started. You know, like Frankenstein versus the Wolfman and Abbott and Costello, the Frankenstein, which had Dracula and the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster. You had House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. You know, it got campy after a while, but there's definitely for building a franchise with the right cast and the right directors. And I think a lot of people would have a lot of fun with those movies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Get it together, Universal. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> the, the glue, the secret that they just haven't figured out yet is Larry the Cable Guy. I knew it. I knew that's where that's where you were going with that. <laughs> the secret sauce. I think that's a perfect place to end it, but we're not ending it there because I got one more question for you. If you were to meet up with Frankenstein's monster, would you die? It's funny, like I knew you were gonna ask that question, but I never actually had a, an opportunity to to think about it. So I think it depends on which version of the monster I meet. If I meet the version in the movie, yes, I will one hundred percent die. He's big and he's scary and he would just strangle me or rip me apart. If I met the version in the book who doesn't shut the fuck up, I probably would have like started like an insult war with him and he would have you know come back with a like a retort you know that lasted for 15 minutes and while he was talking and uh, pontificating i would just sneak away nice so for me if it was boris karloff's frankenstein i would definitely die i don't think he'd try to kill me he would just throw me into a river and i wouldn't be able to swim and i would just drown <laughs> like little <laughs> yeah yeah we didn't talk about that iconic scene at all. So uh thrown four feet into the water and dies. Me. Yeah, that's you. But if it was the book, I would try your same technique of just getting into like a uh, roast battle. Except yeah. whereas you would sneak out, he would get me with the burn so deep that it just stops my heart and I die on the scene. <laughs> He'd say, like, Spider wasn't that great or some shit like that. Be like, <gasps> <laughs> oh boy. Your opinions don't matter. You like Godzilla versus Kong. I die. <laughs> Cocaine Bear was mid. I die. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think that's, I think, uh, that was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me on this episode. Thank you for helping me make Spider. And uh, I'm excited for what 2024 brings us. And uh, I'm excited for people to see Spider. Yeah, same here. Thank you for having me. And uh, this is a lot of fun. I'm going to go drink another beer. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thanks again to Doug for joining me today. 
I am nearing my 100th episode of the Would You Die podcast, which is crazy. So I really wanted to talk about Frankenstein before I hit that milestone episode. I also wanted to do the same thing with Predator, so I'm very happy that I got to talk about Predator and Frankenstein before I hit episode 100, which that, I'm really excited for that one, guys. And uh, thank you to everyone who contributed to our Indiegogo campaign for Spider. An update for you guys, we are in the thick of post-production, we are mixing the sound, working on a few VFX shots, and composing the score. So I'm currently overseeing all of that, and uh, I'm still working on some of the perks. A lot of the perks have been sent out already, but a lot also haven't. So I'm still working on those. It's busy, busy times for the Spider team. But I am so excited, guys. I'm so excited for everyone to see this short. And I think a lot of you are really, really going to dig this one. A reminder, I just became an affiliate for Fangoria, one of the premier brands in horror. I definitely recommend checking out their magazine and even subscribing. And if you decide to do that, don't forget to use the promo code WouldYouDieShow for 20% off your entire order. You can find the show's social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WouldYouDieShow. Also, now you can follow me on TikTok at WouldYouDiePodcast. You can find the Would You Die YouTube show on the Three Wise Men Media YouTube channel, where you can also find professional wrestling, trailer reviews, and much, much more. The music you hear in the beginning and end of each episode is composed by my friend, Josie Palmer. Next week, it's time! The 99th episode of the Would You Die podcast will be a holiday banger. You already know what it is. Until next time, I'm Austin Taurus. Try not to die.